Back in 1 Samuel, we saw, 1 and 2 Samuel really, we saw how God was king over Israel and the people were just up and down. Samuel was the last of the judges and the people were just up and down spiritually, morally, everything. It was chaos. And so at the time of Samuel's, almost at the time of his death, really, the people say to Samuel, we don't want God as our king anymore. We want a king just like the world. We want a king like everybody else with the crown and the fanfare and the splendor. We want somebody looking awesome when we go into battle. We want people to be impressed. We want to be like everybody else. And it, Samuel's heart was broken. Samuel was like, you know what? This is, this is horrible. And he went before the Lord and he was crying out to the Lord. And the Lord said to him, Samuel, don't be angry, okay? They have not rejected you. They've rejected me as being king over them. I'm the one who they're wanting to throw out. And he said, I want you to anoint a guy named Saul. And remember, Saul was head and shoulders above other Jews. He was really tall. He was good looking. He was like, if you want the picture perfect king and you want to have a figurehead, a trophy to show the rest of the nations that they would be impressed, Saul was the guy. The trick with Saul is he was more concerned about his kingdom, his power, than he was about God's kingdom. And so you know the story, God raised up David, right? And we see time and time again in scripture where God says that David was a man after his own heart, but David did so many crummy things. David made so many mistakes. Well, you know what, so do I. And I can find comfort in that, in that God still uses broken and messed up people. But the cool thing about this is, David's heart was for God, and you see in David's writings in his Psalms that God was king. And that's what made the difference, was even though David was king as you know, representative of Israel, in his heart, God was still king. And for Solomon, his son, early in his reign, God was still king. But then, of course, we know what happened with Solomon. He got wrapped up in all of the junk and the temptations and all of the things of this world. And he basically was, had a double heart. He wasn't faithful to the Lord. And after his reign, the kingdom split. Jeroboam took 10 tribes, the northern tribes in Israel. And Rehoboam, Solomon's son, took Benjamin and Judah. Okay? And so it was a divided kingdom now. What we're going to pick up now is several years later. And God is judging Israel and Judah for their sin. And we'll see that they're still rejecting him as king. Now Judah has some up and downs. There's times where they're following the Lord, times when they're not. Israel straight out is not following the Lord. But God still shows some compassion. Okay, so we're going to look at how he deals with the people. And we're going to see God's heart, not only for the people of Israel, but God's heart for the world and his love for people and his call 
for repentance and to come back to him because he cares about the world. We see that fulfilled in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? He's concerned about everybody. So we're going to begin in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23, okay? And they were rejecting the king again, God, and God is speaking through the prophets. When we go into Amos, we're going to see that God says that he never does anything without making it known through the prophets, okay? God always lets people know what he's up to. He always gives them a heads up. And you know what? We have that here still. We know how the story ends. In the book of Revelation, we know how it ends. And so, this is why this is so important. When we see what the prophets say, because we're going to be looking at Jonah, Amos, Obadiah, and Isaiah. All four of them contemporaries during the two reigns of Jeroboam II and of King Uzziah. And God is doing some incredible things. But what we're going to see is that as God proclaims what he's going to do through the prophets to the people, we're going to see him declare what's going to happen immediately in the near future for them and what's going to happen during the millennial kingdom and what's going to happen when Jesus Christ comes the first time. So God's giving this huge spread of what he's about to do over the course of several centuries and then on into the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign, okay? So he's given the picture. He's giving the understanding of what he's about to do. And this is why it's so cool. Because for them, they could see God on the move during their day. And they could have confidence for God being on the move in the future. For us, we can see God fulfilling his promises in the past. And we have confidence that God will fulfill his prophecies in the future. And what I find so comforting for me is this. We see that God was king in the past. We see that God is king in the future. And that means God is king now. And if he can handle the universe and everything else, he can handle my little universe. He can handle my life. He cares about me, he cares about you, and he proved that on the cross. And we're going to see Jesus declared during this time period. So we're in 2 Kings chapter 14, verse 23. This is where we're going to start. In the 15th year of Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, Jeroboam, this is Jeroboam II, okay, son of Joash. And if you're confused now, there was a King Joash of Israel and a King Joash of Judah, all right? And they were almost contemporaries. So it's not a typo. There were two different kings there. Joash, king of Israel, began to reign in Samaria. And he reigned 41 years, longest king of Israel that there was. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam the first, the one who led Israel into idolatry, after Solomon had been king, okay? He restored the, um, oh, yeah, 
sorry, he did not depart from all the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spake by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would not or that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Okay, so this is what's going on. The nations, and we're going to see Amos call out the nations for their sins against Israel, okay? But what happens is Israel's crumbling. It's falling apart. And God loves Israel, even though they are defying him and rejecting him and don't want to follow him, he's not going to let them go down. And even though Jeroboam II was a wicked, evil king, for the sake of his love for his people, he used Jeroboam to restore the borders of the northern kingdom and even a little beyond because it was from up in Damascus in Syria all the way down to the Dead Sea, okay? Now, Uzziah was the king, he would become the king of Judah, 52 years as king. And under the combined reigns, they take back the territory that God had given David and Solomon. So before God exercises judgment against his people, he gives them the opportunity to come home. He gives them the opportunity to get right before he has to deal with them with discipline. That's God's heart. He's compassionate and loving. So he gives them a, basically a fresh start. They give them a new opportunity. And now with this being said, you notice that Jonah was the prophet that God used, right? The fish guy, okay? Now, let's go over to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 4 Verse 1, I'm not going to go through the whole story of Jonah. Most of us have learned that from, you know, early, early uh, Sunday school and stuff like that. We know what happened. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to tell them I'm going to judge them. And Jonah goes the other way and gets eaten by a whale, boom, barfed out. And, hey, he ends up going to Nineveh. He does not preach forgiveness. He goes through Nineveh, and all this man says to the people of Nineveh is in 40 days, God's going to take you out. 40 days, that's all you got, and then you face God. That's a real loving prophet, right? But that was his message. And the thing is, the people of Nineveh and the king of Nineveh go, okay, time out. We need to repent. We need to get right with God. Not because God said he would forgive them, but the king of Nineveh said, maybe God will forgive us if we repent of our sin. Maybe he'll do that. The people of Assyria, Nineveh was its capital, were brutal. And they were brutal to Israel as well as everybody else. One of the things they did to their captives is they would take a hook, a big fish hook, 
and they would drive it up underneath the jaw of their captives and run it through under the tongue and all so it pops out. And I know that sounds horrible, but that's what they did. And they would rope you to the back of a horse and you had to keep up with the horse. If you didn't, it was going to be really bad. They were, they were absolutely violent people. And Jonah was like, no, I am not going to preach to those people. Chapter 4, verse 1 tells us why. Now they've repented. And it says, actually, let's go to 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. He spared them. He gave them grace and mercy. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? Didn't I tell you this when I was back in Israel? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah said, I knew you were going to do this. I knew if I preached to these horrible people, if they repented, you were going to be loving to them. You were going to be gracious to them and forgive them. I knew it and I didn't want you to. Now here's what's interesting. God sends Jonah to the people of Israel, God's people, right? And he says, I'm giving you another chance. I'm going to restore your borders. I'm going to strengthen you. I'm not going to let the enemy take you down. I love you. Did they repent? No. He sends Jonah to pagans who were violent people. And he didn't preach forgiveness. He just said, God's going to judge you and take you down. They repented and God forgave them. You can't help but think of when Jesus came to the world. And Jesus said, his own received him not. Jesus came to the people of Israel, his people, and they rejected their king. But the Gentiles, and Amos is going to bring this out, the Gentiles, they did receive the king. Isn't that crazy? For whatever reason, Israel just was bent on disobeying the Lord and rejecting him all the way through to Christ and beyond. Now, Paul tells us that they're going to be grafted back in and there's going to be a revival for Israel in the last days. And we'll see that also this morning. But it's amazing to me how we as the people of God, when God calls out to us, we can sometimes just be obstinate. But yet the person who's lost, they realize they're lost and they turn to the true God and repent. It's crazy how this unfolded. But God's heart is for people to repent for people to be right with him before he has to drop the hammer. That's why Jesus came first to redeem humanity. The second time he comes, it will be to judge, okay? 
God desires that none perish, but that all come to repentance. That's what the scripture tells us. The prophet Ezekiel cried out to Israel and said, or God did through Ezekiel. He said, I take no delight in the death of the wicked. I don't want to take you guys out. Be zealous and repent. God's not a mean, awful, vindictive person who just wants to just smack people down. He loves people so much. And we see that here. Two groups of people, same prophet, two different responses to the word of God. Now, turn a little bit back to the book of Amos, okay? So you've got Jonah, Obadiah's before that, Amos is before that. Jonah comes first in this whole thing, then Amos and Obadiah, and then Isaiah, okay? We're not going to read all of this, but the book of Isaiah, or Amos, I'm sorry, God brings charges against the nations, all right, the Gentiles. It begins with Syria in verse 3, Philistia, verse 6, Tyre, which was the land of the uh, Syrophoenicians up in the, the northern area of Israel. They were brutal people. Verse 11, Edom, okay? Now, there's a greater judgment under Obadiah because Obadiah specifically calls out Edom for their sin. Does anybody remember who the father of the Edomites was? His name starts with an E. Brother of a guy named Jacob? Did somebody say it? Because I'm deaf. Oh, well, <laughs> I know you know. Um, but uh, yeah, Esau. Esau. And God is judging the people of Esau. And Obadiah brings this out and says, these are your brothers. The people of Israel are your blood relatives. You had the same great, 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 great grandpa. And every time Tyre and Moab and Ammon and Egypt and everybody was tearing apart your family, the Israelites, you were jumping on the bandwagon and taking advantage of your brothers. You were rejoicing in the suffering that they were going through. And God dealt with the people of Edom. You can read the book of Obadiah. It's the shortest book of the Old Testament. And you'll see, you know, God's like, you know, why are you doing this? I'm going to judge you because of what you've done to your brethren. In verse 13, God calls out Ammon, the Ammonites. Chapter 2, verse 1, Moab. And then, chapter 2, verse 4, God calls out Judah. Verse 4, he says, For three transgressions of Judah... And for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and they have not kept his statutes, but their lies have led them astray. Those after which their fathers walked, so I will send a fire upon Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. Then, verse six, he calls out Israel. And Ammon was sent, I mean Ammon, um, Amos was sent primarily to deal with the nation of Israel, that part of God's people. And he says, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. 
because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Basically, they were spiritually and morally corrupt. They were taking advantage of the poor. There, were, there was injustice in the courts. Everything that was against the very nature and laws of God, Israel was doing. And down in chapter 3, verse 2, he says, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You're my people, but you're doing things that the other nations are doing and worse. And I'm going to have to deal with you for this. You know, for some reason... Sometimes Christians think that we're above the law of God. We think, well, I'm a Christian. God will forgive me. I'm under grace. Because we're under grace, we're that much more responsible to walk in the ways of God. Thank God when we fall, the Lord is there to forgive us when we repent of our sin. But, you know, Paul had to deal with this because people were saying, hey, you know what? I can do what I want to because I'm under grace and God loves me. And Paul says, should we sin all the more so that grace can abound all the more? No way. No, we're not going to do that. God judges his people. And because we're his people and we're the family of God, we should be living by a higher standard. We need to be living by the ways of God. And so God says, I'm going to judge you. In verse 7, this is where it says, For the Lord God does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. We're going to be dealing with a lot of prophecy from here on out. And God is letting his people know and the world know what he is doing because he wants them to listen and repent and get right with him. In chapter 4, verse 6, he shows how he has gently started to work with Israel, trying to turn them around. Verse 6, I gave you cleanliness of teeth, basically famine. You don't have any food to eat. Your teeth are clean. Verse 7, then I withheld the rain, drought. That didn't do it. Verse 9, I struck you with blight and mildew. That didn't do it. Verse 10, I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. And you remember how God dealt with Pharaoh and with Egypt? It's like, okay, let my people go. No. Okay, let's turn the water into blood. No. And then God just escalated it, always giving the opportunity to repent. And that's what God is reminding them here. Hey, I gave you this, you didn't turn. I did this, you didn't turn. I did this, you didn't turn. I did this, you didn't turn. And they're just not listening to the Lord. 
I thank God that he does not just hit us with a two by four when we sin. That he doesn't have a temper and that when we screw up and when we disobey and when we fail, he goes bam and just hits us upside the head. I'm glad he doesn't do that with the world. You know, can you imagine if that was the heart of God for this world? He would just wipe everybody out. In his righteousness and power, he could do that, but that's not his heart. And so he says, okay, let's, let's repent. All right, let's try this again. Let's repent. Okay, let's take it up a notch. Let's repent. He's slow to anger. He's loving and gracious and merciful. And he keeps warning them about what he's going to do. Now, that being the case, we're seeing how God's heart is. He starts calling them out on other things and how he's going to discipline them. So let's go over now to chapter 8, verse 11. They're not listening, they're not listening, they're not listening. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to east. They shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. God says, you're not listening to me? You don't want to hear what I have to say? You're not taking the opportunities to repent and get right so I can forgive you? So the days are coming when it's going to get really bad. And you're going to start calling out for me and wanting to know what I have to say, but I'm not going to answer. The time period between Malachi and John the Baptist are known as the 400 years of silence. And we don't have any prophetic word from God. There comes a time where when people say, I don't want to hear anything you have to say to me, God, God says, okay. Then I'll stop trying. That's a really bad place to be. But fortunately, what we see is that God still has a heart for his people. And despite a rebellious heart, he knows that some are going to turn. In chapter 9, he promises the destruction of Israel. But go to chapter 9, verse 9. And this is something that really is important for us to remember. He says, for behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. God says, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to bring in the other nations and they are going to sift you like wheat. Isaiah will declare it's going to be the Assyrians that come in. I am going to shake you up, but not one pebble is going to hit the ground. All the dust is going to fall through, but there will be a remnant that remains. All the evil ones I will destroy, but I'll keep the remnant. And we're going to see this continual thing of the remnant coming up in Amos and Isaiah.
God says, there's going to be some of those who are going to follow me. And I'm going to keep them. I'm going to protect them. Well, what does this look like? Well, verse 11. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the old days, that they may possess the remnant of Edom. Okay, that word also means mankind. And all the nations, which is translated in Greek as Gentiles, who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. What is this talking about? I'm glad you asked. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 15, verse 16. Remember, Israel has rejected their king, Jesus. He has been crucified. Paul and Silas are out, or Paul and Barnabas, I'm sorry. They're out preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and people are coming to the Lord like mad. And so they come back to Jerusalem and they're before the council in Jerusalem. And James, who is the half-brother of Jesus and pastor of the Jerusalem church, is listening to all this. And they're going, wait a minute. Because you had Jews who were saying, if you're going to be a Christian, you have to be a Jew first. And then you can be saved. But Peter had already talked about this and said, no, Cornelius, he's a Roman. And boy, as soon as we talked about Jesus, his family believed, bam, they got hit with the Holy Spirit. They were speaking in tongues just like we got, and they weren't Jews. So they knew God was moving amongst the Gentiles, okay? So when they're trying to weigh this out and go, well, wait a minute, do they have to keep the law or not keep the law? They come to the conclusion, no, they're getting born again without having to keep the law. And so look at what James says. Let's actually go to uh, verse 13. After they finished speaking, that's Paul and Barnabas, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles, Cornelius, the Roman, to take a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, Amos, just as it is written, after this I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. The prophecy that God gives Amos is fulfilled when the Gentiles are coming to Christ. The time of the Gentiles. This is what James is referring to. And it is so beautiful how God is saying, look, you're going to reject me, but I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to sift you up and everything, and there's going to be a remnant of Israel. Paul deals with that a lot in the book of Romans, okay? There's going to be a remnant, but there's also going to be the Gentiles that are going to follow the Lord. They're going to seek the Lord. That is incredible. The gospel being fulfilled and proclaimed all the way back in Amos. Okay, so this is God dealing with Israel. Now, go over to the book of Isaiah. Okay, chapter 1. Isaiah is dealing with Judah 
the southern portion of the kingdom, okay? The southern kingdom. And there has been ups and downs and ups and downs and ups and downs with following the Lord with Judah. And the first five chapters, God is actually taking the people of Judah to court. He is going to bring his charges against his people, calling creation as witness for what they have done. It begins in verse, well, let's start with verse 1. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Uzziah was a mighty king. Fifty-two years he was king. He started out following the Lord, loving the Lord, and God moved mightily for the people of, of Judah. But he got cocky. And he was so close to God, he decided one day, you know what? I am going to worship God the way that I want to. And so he grabbed a censer and put incense in it. And he went into the house of the Lord where only the priests could go. And he thought he had it in with God enough to where he could do what only the priests were commissioned to do. And that's offer incense to the Lord and worship the Lord that way. And the, the priest caught him and said, like, what are you doing? You can't be in here. And Uzziah in his pride is like, you know, you can't tell me what to do. And as soon as he had that rebellious attitude toward them, God struck him with leprosy. They got him out of the temple. He ended up having to move out of the area, live as a leper the rest of his life. His son was co-regent because he could not interact with people. So his son was his representative as he continued to rule Judah. And he did not repent before the Lord. He was spiritually arrogant and proud. And so Isaiah is now coming in at the tail end of his reign and will deal with his sons and how God is going to deal with Israel as their tail spinning into sin. And in verse 2 he says, Hear, O heavens, this is God speaking, and give ear, O earth, he's calling out to creation, for the Lord has spoken, Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. My own kids that I have brought up, the people of Judah, they're rebelling against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. You hear the heart of God. It's like, you know what? A beast of burden knows their master and my own children don't want to have anything to do with me. They don't know me. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel, and they are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. He's saying, kids, why are you doing this? Why are you so set on rebelling against me? And then he goes on to start bringing the charges. But in verse 16, 
he's calling, or 15, I'm sorry, he's calling them to repentance. He said, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. It's like, gang, please repent. Stop doing the things that you're doing. Verse 18, that famous passage. Come now. Let us reason together. That's a legal term. Come on, let's, let's deliberate this in the court setting. Let's, let's look at the facts here. Let's deal with this. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's like, gang, come on. Let's, let's talk about this. Let's get this right. If you repent and obey me, I'll bless you. But if not, I've got to discipline you. Understand that when God disciplines us, it's because he loves us. I'm a parent. I have four kids. I never enjoyed disciplining my kids. I don't know if any good parent enjoys disciplining their kids. And we see this when people go, all right, I'm going to count to three. Okay, one, two, three. Or if you do that again, we love our kids. We don't want to have to discipline them. We would rather that they repent, right? We would rather them turn and we can go, okay, I forgive you. But if they don't, because we don't want them to continue in things that are wrong and ungodly and that's going to mess their lives up, we have to correct them. That's what love does. And that's God's heart. And so he says, come on, let's deal with this. And then he goes on and talks about how he's going to sift them and he's going to put them into the, the furnace and smelt the dross off and purify them. Okay, similar to what he was talking about with Israel through the prophet Amos. But get this, even though he says, I'm going to judge you because of your sin, chapter 2, verse 1 He's pointing all the way out to the millennial reign of Christ. This kingdom is going to be punished, but another kingdom is coming. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. Everybody's going to be coming to, to Mount Zion and many people shall come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. Again, Amos points of when the Gentiles are going to be coming to Christ. And God is telling through Isaiah, a day is coming when the nations are going to come to Jerusalem, 
and they're going to seek the Lord. And we know from the book of Revelation that the people will come during the millennial reign of Christ and they are going to stand before the Lord and seek the Lord there in Jerusalem. And it says in verse 4, He shall judge between the nations, that's Messiah, and shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up its sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And then God says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Come on, guys. Let's get in step with the Lord. Let's follow him. God only wants our best, and that's what he wanted for his people here. And then he starts calling them out on their sins and what they're doing and all again, the evidence against them. And then he takes us back in chapter 4, verse 2, to the time of the millennial reign. In that day, the branch of the Lord, that is a reference to Messiah, to Jesus, okay? Shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. We see in the book of Revelation that there will be a remnant of Israel that is saved, okay? And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. That means set apart, sanctified. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Then the Lord will create over the whole side of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, his, their, her people, a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. Does that sound familiar? Going back to what was going on in the Exodus, where the Lord was covering his people a cloud by day to give them shade and directing them and a pillar of fire by night to lead them through the darkness and to be over them. And they knew God was in their midst. And a day will be coming when the Lord will reign from Zion and the people of the earth will come and look to him and there will be no more war during that time of Christ's reign here on the earth. So God's showing everything that he's about to do. And then he's wrapping up this, this uh, court case. And in chapter 5, verse 3, he says, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to be done for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. He went from calling creation as witness to Judah and Jerusalem and said, Okay, gang, what more could I have done? What more could I have done for you 
to help us get this thing resolved and you guys come and follow me and worship me and seek me and repent of your sin. I couldn't do anything more. I sent the prophets, I've called to you, I've loved you, I've given you opportunity, but you wouldn't have it. I can't do anything more. And so I'm going to remove the hedge of protection from about you. And he goes on to say who that's going to be. And it's the people of Assyria. Okay? Now, let's go to chapter 6. Uzziah the king is now dead. All right? Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe to me, or woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of Israel. When Isaiah saw the king, okay, King Uzziah, a mighty king, a powerful king, a great king, he's gone and the vision of the true king of Israel and the king of kings and lord of lords is before him now. And he just like, woe is me. He's scared to death and he confesses his sin. I'm unclean. I'm a sinner. And then this beautiful thing that the Lord does and picture this. This is one of the seraphim. We see them in the book of Ezekiel. We see them in the book of Revelation. Mighty, powerful, angelic beings. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sins atoned for. Remember, the altar was the altar of judgment. And when you sacrificed upon the altar, the sins were atoned for. And here he is, he sees the king. He repents and says, I'm a sinner. And the Lord cleanses him of his sin. And then he says in verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And he said, Here am I, send me. This makes me think of Peter. Luke chapter 5. You remember the story? Jesus is preaching to the multitudes. And Peter and Andrew and James and John, they come in from fishing all night. They don't have anything. And Jesus says to Peter, hey, let me get in your boat and push out a little bit from the, the shore. And there's all these crowds. And so Jesus begins teaching the multitudes. And when it's all said and done, Jesus says to Peter, Peter, go out into the deep and cast your net. And Peter's like, Lord, 
we've been doing this all night. And remember, these are pros. We've been doing this all night and we didn't catch a thing. But then Peter says, nevertheless, at your word, I'll do it. And so he goes out, Jesus is there with him. And you know what happens? He throws in the net and they catch the mother load. So much so that the net's breaking, the ship's sinking, the boat's sinking and all that. And Peter's freaking out. And they're calling James and John to get over there to help him out with this, okay? And Peter falls on his face before Jesus in that boat. And he says, depart from me for I am a wicked man. He sees the power of Jesus, the King of Kings, and he falls on his face and says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Isaiah was like, I'm a sinner. And the Lord says, who will go for us? And he sends Isaiah. That's so beautiful. God takes fallen, broken people with a penitent heart and he says, I want to do things through your life, in your life, for your life. And God calls him. And then he says to Isaiah, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to take down Judah and Jerusalem. But in verse 13, he says, though a tenth of it remain in it, it will be burned again. Like a terabith or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled, the holy seed is its stump. That's a way of saying there's going to be a remnant. I'm going to discipline my people, but there's going to be a stump, and the stump will grow again. And then God sends him to King Ahaz. Ahaz, chapter 7, is the most wicked king of Judah. This guy offered his children upon the altar of Molech, burning them alive in worship to pagan gods, to demons. This guy was bad news. He hated the Lord, didn't want to do anything for the Lord or with the Lord. But God's going to give him an opportunity to repent and get right. Verse 3, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar, Jeshub, that's his son, okay, Isaiah's son. The name there means a remnant shall remain, okay? He's just told Isaiah that there's going to be a remnant of the people who turn and follow him, follow the Lord. His son is named for that, okay? Now, this is what's going on. Syria and Israel have combined together to attack Judah, and Judah can't stand there's no way they're going to be dropped because of the power of the two kingdoms. And they're scared to death. And God says, you go and you meet Ahaz at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field and say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands, at the fierce anger of Rezin, he's the king of Syria, and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim, that's another name for Israel, and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves, and, let, and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of us. Thus says the Lord God, 
It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is resin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. God says, Ahaz, don't be scared. This isn't going to work. You're going to be okay. Verse 9, he says, And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. That's the way of saying, buddy, if you don't trust me, you're going to fall. You've got to trust me. It's going to be okay. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Well, how do we know that he's with him? Verse 10, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol, the grave, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God says, Ahaz, I'm with you. Ask me a sign, anything, and I'll prove it to you. Now, it sounds like Ahaz is spiritual here. I'm not going to put God to the test. When God tells you to ask something, ask it, okay? It's not putting him to the test, okay? It's when you're pushing God and saying, I want something that God's saying, no, you don't. That's putting God to the test. The reason why he didn't want to ask anything is because Ahaz knew God could do anything. And if God showed that sign, then Ahaz was going to be in a situation where it's like, okay, I've either got to put my trust in God or not. I've got to put my money where my mouth is. Mm, no, I'm not going to do that. And God says, okay, I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And you're going to know that I'm with you. And this, of course, is speaking of Jesus, the virgin birth. This is what the gospels cite, okay? But it's like, I'm going to do this. And then he says in verse 16, For before the boy, that's Jesus, knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread, Syria and Israel, will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you, upon your people, and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Wow. So God's saying, this is what's going to happen. They're not going to get you. But because you're not repenting, before Messiah is born, you will be under captivity in Assyria. Okay? And of course, we know what happens. In time, God sends Nebuchadnezzar and takes Judah into captivity. Before that happens, the Assyrians take Israel and they basically take all the Israelites out and put other people in the land of Israel to try to wipe out the people of God. Within 65 years, Israel would be no more. So God is telling them, this is what I'm going to do. But they still don't want to repent. And we'll wrap up with this. Verse 11. For the Lord spoke thus with me, with the strong hand upon me, 
and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. Don't be afraid of the armies and all of that. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread, and he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. He says, Isaiah, don't be afraid. You be afraid of me. And he says, I'll be a shelter to the ones who follow him, but a stumbling block and a rock of offense. And remember, that's exactly what Jesus said of himself when he came to his people Israel. They rejected him. He was the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. We don't want this king. We want the one who's going to deliver us from Rome. We want the one who's going to set up his kingdom now and wipe out all our enemies. And Jesus comes saying, I'm going to deal with the bigger issue. And that's the sin of humanity so that I can save them and make them my people for all eternity. I come first to redeem because I don't want to come and just judge. If I do, everybody's gone. Don't be afraid of the things that are out there. Don't be afraid of this world. He was king at the beginning. He's the king from all eternity past. He's the king of all eternity to come. And he's the king now. And he has your life in his hand. Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, whatever you're afraid of, don't be afraid of it. Because your king is the great king and there is nobody who can stop him. Nobody can snatch you out of his hand. He loves you so much. And you can rest in him. 